as things kind of crumble and fall away, I connect more and more to this truth that like I own ballet. Every person that practices ballet owns ballet and it's not something that anyone can actually own. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we bring you our interview with dancer and choreographer Katie Pyle. As a young student, Katie almost quit ballet altogether after years of hearing from ballet teachers and schools that they were not the right size or shape for ballet. A move to New York, though, opened new avenues for them to dance with and choreograph for numerous well-regarded contemporary dance ensembles. In 2011, however, Katie, who identifies as genderqueer lesbian, recommitted to their original passion. They created Ballets, a Brooklyn-based company that welcomes the talents and stories of queer ballet dancers who historically have always been part of ballet, but to this day do not get acknowledged, much less celebrated. Katie and Ballets aim to celebrate the queerness and joy inherent in ballet by doing away with the rigid cis-hetero structures and methods that once almost killed their passion for the form. Among the ballets that Katie has developed for the company are queer reimaginings of two canonical works, The Firebird and Sleeping Beauty, which they retitled Sleeping Beauty and the Beast, and that explored two crucial events a century part in the history of New York's Lower East Side the striking garment workers of 1893, and the AIDS activist dykes of 1993. Man, I, I wish I could have seen that. It sounds so great. Yeah, she's groundbreaking. Katie spoke to us from their home in Brooklyn. I started by asking them to tell us about a project they're particularly eager to leap into once indoor rehearsing and public performances return. You know, I am actually working on a show right now. Um, I've been working on it through this entire chaotic year in various ways. Um, we've rehearsed outside, we've rehearsed on Zoom, we've used video, um, and yeah, life continues in this very weird new form, but it is ongoing. <laughs> um, the project is called Giselle of Loneliness, and I find it um, has been very ironic this year how much that title has like come to encompass. It was something that I started researching and planning for in 2017, and I titled it in 2017, and I didn't know that this year would be um, such a good fit for the subject matter, <laughs> which is um, really difficult, really dark. It's very much a reflection on the Romantic Era Ballet Giselle, which is about betrayal and actually, you know, was created in the Romantic era when um, the society where it was created in Western Europe was dealing with tuberculosis. And so actually Giselle, like living inside of her little tiny house, she's not supposed to go out of her house. She's not supposed to dance <laughs> at all because it's going to um, her heart is not strong enough. So, you know, kind of weirdly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> connected this year. And then another part of the inspiration for this show 
is this Radcliffe Hall novel that was made in the 20s, it was written in the 20s, um, called The Well of Loneliness, which is about an experience of a, a queer person, gender nonconforming person in relationship to society and a, and a kind of prolonged feeling of unbelonging and loneliness, which obviously also <laughs> resonates this year. Um, and the show is is all solos. That was also determined before this year happened. It was supposed to premiere in June 2020 at the Joyce, but now it's been postponed and we are looking at a live stream premiere in June 2021, which is the year we're in. Although I keep forgetting that because it's so strange. <laughs> but yeah, so that that work has been ongoing and will continue uh, onwards. And the themes that are coming up in the solos are kind of around each dancer's relationship to ballet and ways that they did or didn't belong, suffering that they experienced in relationship to that not belonging, and betrayal that they experienced in relationship to the form betraying them by not allowing them to be who they are and by who they are, I mean, all the dancers I work with are people that don't fit into traditional binary gender expectations or within ballet, and they are all queer identified people. So there is something kind of inherently at odds with the heteronormative cisgendered form of ballet and these dancers. So <laughs> when we get into working on the material, because everyone's been in isolation this year and kind of sitting with themselves, sitting with their own struggles in ballet and in the world at large and kind of being with suffering throughout this entire year, I feel like people have just deepened how they express that and what they're allowed to express. I mean, it gets it gets kind of weird. It's kind of hard to talk about because it is actually like so physical and so emotional, but I just feel like every single person that's performing in this work and they're all in their 20s. So, you know, this is like something uh I think that's also just been a big shift for this younger generation. <laughs> Like the maturity that they have now and the ability and the willingness to kind of bring to this very emotional material that is about their past trauma uh, is really heightened now. I feel like these particular people have worked through a lot of their own history, their own feelings, and kind of come to a place where they're able to bring that vulnerability into their performance and allow it to be seen. So it's it sounds like clearly the events of 2020 uh, have affected the depth with which you and your dancers are approaching this work. What else? What else did the past year show you about your, your world, the world of dance, the the role of dance in communities? What unexpected lessons have you learned about this incredible last 12 months? I mean, I think you know. For me personally, there's been a, a mental shift in terms of why I'm making what I'm making and who I'm making it for um, because I've seen 
these things disappear that I was kind of vying for or depending on or hoping to gain access to. And I guess I've just like noticed that they're really not that supportive after all. And they don't actually have the key to creativity or creation, period. <laughs> that that's actually something that I have access to and that I have access to through my own self and through my connections to my community and the artists that I am blessed to work with and connect to. I think there's a way that ballet specifically has been this institution itself <laughs> that treats dancers as property and treats makers as property and you have to be able to get in, into it and belong inside of it in order to benefit from the system. But as things kind of crumble and fall away, I connect more and more to this truth that like I own ballet. Every person that practices ballet owns ballet. And it's not something that anyone can actually own. It is a form and it is a, a transient expression that is practiced by people and the people that practice it and continue to, to reckon with it and play with it and express through it are the people that create what it is. So I think these illusions of who has power and why have shifted, although <laughs> there are still people that have had access to studios throughout this whole pandemic and it does make me crazy. But the fact that I can teach a ballet class on the basketball court in the center of Crown Heights to my neighbors and my friends and my incredible, beautiful dancing colleagues and a bunch of three and four-year-olds that are playing on the playground will see that and see ballet for the first time right where they live is epic to me. And it is really meaningful because it just decentralizes all of these ideas about who has access to art and why and how. Ballet is especially so capitalistic and it's so centered in cis-heteropatriarchal values, which are about a certain type of beauty, a certain type of gender, a certain type of body, but to kind of like remove it from those things because none of that stuff really matters right now. <laughs> Because there's no shows to go to. There's no tickets to sell. Um, it does feel like this kind of radical destabilization, really. One of the interesting things about you, of course, is that you're not only a dancer and choreographer, but you also created your own company. So you are now an institutional leader yourself, <laughs> right? So yeah. as you're thinking about the future of your company, what are your hopes for ballet's development that's different from extant institution, ballet institutions? I mean, I really hope that ballets can continue to grow and expand in its connections to people. And that's, you know, that's all I've wanted from the beginning of ballets. And I continue to want that. And I'm hoping that we can continue to kind of think creatively about how those connections can be made, whether it's being able to organize more travel touring for us where we perform on basketball courts in other cities or <laughs> in theaters. 
it's really open for me. And I feel really like I want to remain flexible in how those things manifest, but I do want to continue to bring the actual work of the performances and the classes to broader communities. I think it, you know, it just honestly like breaks my heart to think about young dancers that are training in ballet being told that who they are is wrong. And I want to continue to be able to expand how I can reach those those people to just send a different message and to encourage them to be exactly who they are and to dance from that place. And truly, I don't know what it's going to look like for us to keep going. Like, I just don't know. And I can't, I can't see the future, but I feel like staying connected to individuals and relationships and actual communities of caring is the only way forward. So I guess in some ways, like I feel less interested in trying to like impress grant committees (laughs) or, you know, panels or be kind of on that inside track of anything, because if people don't want to connect to what I'm doing, I don't have time to waste trying to lure them in (laughs) because there's all these other people. You said something really interesting that caught my ear. Katie, around, you know, the old hierarchical structures and problems of the way traditional ballet companies are run mm-hmm. and you're attempting to do something different. So I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you're willing to, you know, lift up the hood a little bit and mm. and describe what is it about your company that you'd like or are aspiring to do differently in terms of things mm-hmm. like power structures, collaboration, mm-hmm. You yeah. know, just voices, yeah. just what, what is different about the totally. system itself or your company that you're trying to create? Yeah. So Ballez doesn't have a system of kind of ranking hierarchy the way that a traditional ballet company does. Like we don't have a corps de ballet and like soloists and principal dancers, like everyone is working on the project. And for this particular show, everyone has a solo and they're the same length. I'm very like into um, equality or a sense of um, fairness. So I'm working with each of the dancers and really getting in depth with who they are and what they want to bring and how I can kind of coach them and work with them and talk to them and dance with them to bring out the best performance that we can make together. And it's very much a collaborative effort. So I kind of source different materials for us to work on and put together a structure. But the ways of inhabiting that structure are entirely dependent on the history and the identity and the reality that that person is living in. So we really like get deep together and make whatever happens, happen (laughs) together. Um, So who they are really, 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 really matters to me, uh, which is not the way that traditional ballet companies function. I remember very much, you know, being told over and over again as a young ballet dancer, you're replaceable. And the idea that every, especially as a female assigned person growing up in ballet, 
that everyone should look the same. They should be close to the same height. They should be close to the same weight. They should have the same kind of body type. They should really be replaceable. (laughs) And this whole structure gears towards making that replacement easy. And that's not what I want to do. Every person that I work with is an individual. They're bringing a whole huge world of talents and ideas and ways of dancing to the process. And my work is to try to reveal that, to reveal that particular beauty and let that be seen and let it be appreciated and, and like, let the weirdness of that person be seen, like let the hilarity of that person be seen, like everything that's kind of special about them inside a form that would like really rather (laughs) keep us all the same and, and like keep the whole group away from this idea of standing out. So I'm just really trying to turn that on its head. So what would you say to a a young person, Mm -hmm. uh, I think particularly as you say, a female-identified ballet dancer who is is training right now and in some ways is feeling what I think you felt, which is I am not fitting fitting in and yet this is my passion and Mm -hmm. I want to be amazing at it. And I want to make this my career for a while. What advice would you have for this person? I saw a really um, positive statistic the other day, which is that 50% of Gen Zers don't subscribe to gender roles (laughs) and the binary. Um, So I think like it doesn't even have to come from me. Like people that are coming up now are going to change this field. It is going to change. It is going to be dead <laughs> or it's going to be reborn um, with a different set of ideals because the generation that's coming now doesn't want to participate in those old structures and ideas. So I guess I would just say like, hold tight. Like you got this, <laughs> you're the future. You're going to be able to be who you are. You're going to be able to dance the way that you want to dance. If you're a female assigned or identified person, if you're a male assigned person who's female identified, you have a future. If you're a non-binary person, you have a future. You can get into the uniqueness of who you are and create a space for yourself where you can dance in the ways that you want to dance and present yourself in the ways you want to present yourself. And there will be an audience for it. Once we have like this turnover of who's in power, which may happen a lot faster (laughs) than we think. Right. Because right now they're still being taught by the the gatekeepers from an older tradition. So we have to wait for that turnover, as you said. Yeah. And, you know, because of the instability of this moment, there will be, I think, a lot of turnover. You know, New York. I live in New York City, which has been a, a very central location for dance throughout the past hundred years. And a lot of those institutions and structures are just falling away, which means there will be space for new things and ideas to grow out of that empty space. 
you've talked about disruption. Has the world of Capital B Ballet noticed your disruption? And <laughs> what's been what's been their reaction? And do you care? I think that they notice it. Um, it's really funny. I feel like I have such a like limited social sphere of interaction now, obviously, because we're not like going to shows. But, you know, Isabella Boylston, who's a quite famous ballerina at ABT, has been just like liking my Instagram posts and like putting little comments. And I'm like, interesting. Like, <laughs> there are these people inside of this. And I, you know, I am also connected to Russell Jansen, who's a principal at New York City Ballet. And we've had multiple conversations about um, thinking beyond these gender binaries. I think there's so many dancers out there, even in these like major institutions that don't enjoy being trapped inside their roles that they are trapped inside of. And I have seen that more on Instagram this year <laughs> than I've seen it, you know, on the stage. And I think that we're going to keep moving towards those bigger possibilities. Um, Absolutely, like James Whiteside, who's also in American Ballet Theater, is someone that has been like putting out a lot of content, a lot of like personal expression that very much defies traditional gender binaries. And I think he's has a big influence. And I think all of these people like will actually shape the future in the next generations and what's to come. Right. And it makes me think there's also, I can't think of his name right now, a young dancer with Houston Ballet, who really throws heteronormativity yes. on its head. Yes. And Harper. They, right, Harper. Harper and Waters. Harper Waters has Absolutely. a huge following. Absolutely. And it makes me think they are creating the audience who will expect something very different in the future. Absolutely. And the people, you know, there are so many people following Harper Waters. They will be so disappointed if they go to Houston <laughs> Ballet and they just see <laughs> that person forced to be a romantic cavalier without mm. heels on and without, right. you know, mm. it's like, that's not what people actually want. Like we're moving towards more expansive ideas of who we all are as individuals. And we want to see that reflected, I think, on stage. I think the kind of maintenance of this binary and the strictness of that really comes from a place of fear of like wanting to hold on to something and be like, this is the tradition. We can't change it because then no one will come or we won't have the things that we've had. But like, first of all, ballet has changed so much from when it started. There was a moment in Italy in the 1800s when only female dancers were allowed to perform and they performed male roles because they decided that male dancers were like ungainly and they didn't like it. So like there were women performing in drag <laughs> in Italy wow. in the 1800s. Like we've seen, you know, Nijinsky obviously had a huge impact on the forum. People freaked out, but like they loved it and people still talk about it because it was exciting. Those moments of transgression are what creates excitement and newness and like passion around like actually going to see things like who's going to go to the theater unless it's something that actually feels like exciting and compelling and new you know rob i love the way they talk about their relationship to tradition because although 
Katie is doing non-traditional work, they're very com much committed to the tradition of the art form of ballet. Mm. They are making ballet. Right. They're honoring the revolutionary tradition of the art, but they're insisting there's no reason it, it shouldn't change to be reflective of and also appealing to 21st century America. They, they want the culture of ballet to finally catch up to the culture at large, right? Yep. So yep. I know that a lot of the work that you do when you work with institutions and companies is about changing changing cultural norms within the institutions. Ballet has centuries of <laughs> cultural norms. So what would go into changing the culture of ballet and ballet companies? Yeah, well, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head there in, in terms of talking about the longevity of ballet. We're talking about some serious ingrained historical beliefs of what it should look like or should be like. And so, uh, you know, in my world of organizational development, a culture change at minimum can take two to 10 years, sometimes longer. Wow. Two years is kind of like a, a a team or a small division, you know, or a small, very small company. Um, the longer it takes often is because you're talking about needing the time for things to happen, like attrition, new workforce to come in and and see that this is the normative way that things happen. So it's not an overnight process, one, especially with a large global culture like ballet. So places to start is to tap into the audience and the donor's impact on the culture of ballet. So if, if we want to attract a new audience that's got, wants to see ballet in a different way, how do we attract them to come and support the art that we're creating? So that ties into things currently like social media, right? Where uh, maybe queer and non-traditional artists can display their talents more directly to the the audience they're trying to reach, uh, and vice versa, you know, uh, an audience that's trying to experience this art outside of the, the cultural norm of the way it's been, maybe out there looking for it. And also they mentioned, I think they mentioned that, um, that's kind of the silver lining of the pandemic in that you, you were talking about attrition, the pandemic is going to cause a forced attrition. So there's going to be, there's going to have to be new leadership that's right. going to come to take over the people who just quit yes. during the pandemic. So there, that, that culture change might happen more quickly than, than we think. Yeah. And then the other part of it is who's going to support that art. And so finding a donor base that is interested in wanting to support it and not expecting to rely on the traditional methods of fundraising. I, I hope as soon as this pandemic is over and I can travel to New York, I really hope I can get to see Giselle of Loneliness because it sounds really beautiful. Indeed. Indeed. Agreed. If you'd like to learn more about Katie and Bellez and read a longer version of this interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. We've got interviews with fascinating artists lined up for you, so be sure to subscribe so as not to miss a single one. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>